By then, I had her on the monitor and her rhythm looked crazy. Like, I had a hard time differentiating what was the QRS complex and what was the T-waves. Both of them just looked like hills. Definitely not the typical PQRST morphology. So I already know her potassium is through the roof. Put an IV in her, I draw some blood, and as soon as I do, she goes into VFib right in front of me. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. On today's episode, I'm going to share with you a story about a patient that was a frequent flyer to my ER that surprised us all when she went into cardiac arrest from hyperkalemia. There is a lot to talk about with regards to the important electrolyte potassium, so I have broken this episode into part one and part two. For part one, I'll tell you all about when Wismonda coded on me and break down the pathophys of hyperkalemia and how it presents. And make sure to tune in next week for part two, where I talk about the treatment for hyperkalemia. So let's dive right in. Uh, I have this patient. She comes to the ER all the time, and I'm just going to call her Miss Wanda for simplicity. But that's not her name. So she's a chronic kidney failure patient, and she's well known to all of us because she's there all the time for missing her dialysis, among a multitude of other chronic ailments that she has. So she's come to us once again on this day with a chief complaint of quote, just don't feel good. I see her name show up on the tracker. I recognize her name right away and I have an open room. So I bring her on back. As I'm getting her on the monitor, I ask her, like I ask all of my ER patients, Miss Wanda, what brings you to see me today? She said, honey, I just wasn't feeling good and I couldn't get to my Dallas appointment. But then I started feeling even worse. So I said, it's time to let the doctor look at me. I said, Miss Wanda, what do you mean that you don't feel good? Are you nauseated? Are you in pain? She said, I just feel weak, honey. It's hard to get up and move around. My legs won't hold me. I had to get my son to practically carry me to the car to even come here today. I said, oh, man, I'm sorry, Miss Wanda. You definitely aren't your perky, usual self. How long have you been feeling this week? She said, well, I was supposed to go to dialysis on Monday and then again on Wednesday. And I'm due for another one today, but I just wasn't feeling up for it. So I clarified, Miss Wanda. You haven't been to dialysis since Friday a week ago? She nodded and said, that's right. I didn't feel good. And dialysis makes me feel even more tired. By then, I had her on the monitor and her rhythm looked crazy. Like, I had a hard time differentiating what was the QRS complex and what was the T-waves. Both of them just looked like hills. Definitely not the typical PQRST morphology. So I already know her potassium is through the roof. 
I put an IV in her, I draw some blood, and as soon as I do, she goes into V-fib right in front of me. So I hop in her chest, I start compressions, and I'm yelling for help. They rush in with the defibrillator, we defibrillator, it did nothing. We gave the typical epinephrine, amiodarone, and I told the team, y'all, her potassium's high. The blood tubes are still sitting right there on the counter, and I haven't had a chance to send it yet. But when I put on the monitor, her T waves were higher than her QRS complexes. She hasn't had dialysis for a week. Without even knowing her actual potassium level, we gave her the whole renal cocktail, which I'll talk about in part two. Once that kicked in, we did get a pulse back. And by then, her rhythm looked totally different than it did before because we had given the calcium and insulin and shifted things a bit intracellularly. We bought her some time with the renal cocktail, and she went to the ICU and received dialysis there. Miss Wanda was right. Something was wrong, and she got to the ER literally just in time. But she could have avoided the whole cardiac arrest ordeal if she had just gone to dialysis on Monday. She was discharged home, and I didn't see her in the ER quite as much after that close encounter with death. So what in the world just happened? Well, the worst case scenario just happened. The thing that we're trying to avoid by even doing dialysis is what happened. Her kidneys were not able to filter off potassium, and her potassium in her bloodstream continued to climb to the point that it caused her to have an arrhythmia and go into cardiac arrest. So let's start with the basics. Normal potassium level is 3.5 to 5 millimoles per liter, though this may vary a little bit depending on your institution. If the potassium level is greater than 5, then technically it is hyperkalemia, though I've never seen anyone have any symptoms from hyperkalemia until they got up into like the 6.5-7 range. To really understand hyperkalemia, we need to back it way up to our anatomy and physiology chapter on action potential of the muscle cell. Remember the sodium-potassium pump? Yeah, that thing, where sodium, potassium, and calcium keep going in and out of the cell, which allows the myocyte to polarize and depolarize or contract and relax. This is why the two biggest clinical signs we see for hyperkalemia is weird EKG changes and weakness or even paralysis. So take it back to Ms. Wanda. She felt weak on Monday. I'm not sure what initially caused her weakness, but for sure the elevated potassium did not help. And the longer she went without dialysis, the higher her potassium level increased and the weaker she got, which is why she ultimately had to be carried to the car to even come to the ER. All muscle cells require a balance of negatively and positively charged ions in and out of the cell. And when the amount of potassium a positively charged ion, exceeds the normal balance of ions, then all the muscle cells, especially the cardiac muscle cells, have a hard time. As to the EKG findings, this is a hard one to teach via the audio platform of a podcast. So I'll be posting some educational visuals on Instagram to supplement these concepts. What you need to know is that when the amount of potassium hanging around outside of the cell in the bloodstream is high, this increases the resting membrane potential, which means the sodium comes into the cell slower, which slows the impulse conduction. So it's more difficult for the heart to repolarize and reset to get ready for the next electrical impulse that will kick off the next depolarization or contraction. The sentence of this would be muscle weakness, including the diaphragm, which is also a muscle. So shortness of breath and just generalized full body weakness. And when it comes to the cardiac conduction system, you can see bradycardias, heart blocks, and the shape of the PQRST waveform starts to morph into something funky. 
I mean, you can visually see that the heart is stuck and can't repolarize properly. So here's the progression that you will see on your ECG. First, you'll see peaked T waves. Literally, they are higher than they usually are. It looks like someone is pulling the T wave up to meet the QRS complex. And then you'll see the P wave kind of flatten out and PR prolongation. And eventually the P wave just disappears altogether. As the potassium worsens, you'll see bradycardias, AV blocks, bundle branch blocks, a prolonged or widened QRS complex, and the shape or morphology changes from like a mountain to more like a hill. So the rhythm that I saw, the QRS looked like a hill. And the T wave was so high, it also looked like a hill. I mean, I saw no discernible P waves at all, nor could I really tell the difference between the QRS complex and the T waves because they basically look the same. So you won't usually see that until the potassium was north of eight. When I finally was able to send Miss Wanda's blood, her potassium that I had drawn minutes before she coded was 8.9. So in summary, the ECG findings progressed from peaked T waves to P wave widening and flattening out to nothing, bradycardia, a wide QRS complex, and then finally, the morphology of both the QRS complex and the T wave rounds out to a sine wave, which appears more like uh, just bumpy hills. <laughs> and then eventually that turns into a ventricular arrhythmia or even a systole. But is it only dialysis patients who get hyperkalemia? Nope, it's not. Hyperkalemia can ensue from multiple conditions, of which too much potassium intake is not usually the culprit. Like, you could eat 100 bananas and it's probably not going to make your potassium go that high as long as your kidneys are working. So usually, if you eat a diet high in potassium, your body, namely your kidneys, can sense how much is coming in, filter off what it doesn't need, and then keep what it does. Maintaining homeostasis within your cells and your bloodstream of how much potassium is needed for normal muscle functioning. A more common cause of hyperkalemia is intracellular shifts of potassium, or transcellular, because technically it's moving out of the cell into the bloodstream. That can be from a cell injury, like the cells literally break open and spill their potassium into the bloodstream. So either from a crush injury or excessive exercise, rhabdomyolysis, burn injuries, in all of these, the broken cells leak potassium into the bloodstream, hence raising the serum potassium level. Another example that you would see on the oncology floor is tumor lysis syndrome. So the cancer cells are dying from chemotherapy, which is what we want to happen, but they can break open and spill their potassium into the bloodstream, which can also cause an acute rise in potassium known as hyperkalemia. Another example that is similar is intracellular shifts from metabolic acidosis. Things like diabetic ketoacidosis is a great example. So in DKA, cells are not breaking open, but the combination of insulin deficiency and the hyperosmolality leads to what appears to be hyperkalemia. So all the potassium is hanging out outside of the cell in the bloodstream. So when you draw blood, the potassium level may be high or normal at first, but once we start insulin therapy, that drives all the potassium back into the cell, and then you end up with hypokalemia. But that's a whole other discussion. So just know, metabolic acidosis states can cause hyperkalemia. Next is adrenal insufficiency. That can lead to hyperkalemia along with really bad dehydration. Uh, also, people who take certain medications like ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, or potassium-sparing diuretics, all of those can cause hyperkalemia. 
Another little hyperkalemia caveat to mention is about succinylcholine administration. So succinylcholine, which I usually just say sucks because half the time the entire drug name comes out of my mouth, I mispronounce it. So sucks is a neuromuscular blocking agent, also known as a paralytic. Specifically, it's a depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agent. Sucks should be avoided in patients who are at risk for hyperkalemia, like those who already have renal failure or who have recently experienced a burn or trauma or are at risk for rhabdomyolysis, which all can potentiate hyperkalemia. So sucks binds to and activates acetylcholine receptors. This allows for an influx of sodium and calcium and an efflux of potassium out into the extracellular space, hence raising the potassium level. In most patients, no biggie. But for some patient populations, it can be problematic. So sucks is usually great because it has a short onset and it also wears off really quickly. But consider which patient you're administering it to because there are other non-depolarizing agents such as rocuronium and vecuronium that won't alter the potassium level. The final type of hyperkalemia that I want you to be aware of is pseudo-hyperkalemia. Yeah, it's just what it sounds like not real hyperkalemia. So sometimes the way in which the blood was drawn can lyse the red blood cells. Actions that create turbulence or too much suction in the blood draw process, like drawing back the syringe too quickly, or when suction is created by some needleless systems, that can cause cells to lyse and hence spilling their contents, including potassium, into the bloodstream. So the potassium level can be normal inside the patient's body, but once the blood hits the tube, the cells are lysed, and the potassium is released, and it's going to elevate the serum potassium level on the lab finding. So if the potassium is really high and it doesn't fit the clinical picture or the patient's history, you might want to redraw that lab. Okay, that was a lot, so let's summarize. Hyperkalemia can be caused from not being able to filter out potassium, like from renal failure. It can be from the body holding on to potassium because of medications that we're administering. And potassium can increase in the blood because it shifts intracellularly from conditions like DKA, crush injuries, burn injuries, rhabdomyolysis, or tumor lysis from chemotherapy. So when potassium is elevated, it can cause issues with the muscles, all of them. Patients can have generalized weakness, including their diaphragm, which is also a muscle. It can be weak, causing difficulty breathing, and then most importantly, their heart also a muscle <laughs> that keeps them alive, it will have difficulty carrying out its normal function. So as potassium increases, you can see the morphology of the ECG start to change. So there'll be peaked T waves initially, widening and disappearing P waves, bradycardias with a widened QRS complex, and ultimately the myocytes are just unable to repolarize and depolarize properly. And the QRS complex and T wave turn into more of a sine wave look, and it's not a good look. Ventricular arrhythmias like V-fib and or asystole is likely to occur if the potassium is not corrected. So tune in next week to learn all about the treatment for hyperkalemia from the renal cocktail to dialysis. It's going to be a farm-heavy episode, and I can't wait to nerd out with you guys. So I'll see you then. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. 
And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.